The reading this evening is taken from Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 21, which can be found on page 985 in the Church Bibles. That's Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began, to settle, began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Um, Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, It's lovely to see you. Let me add my own welcome uh, to you. As a church, we're slowly going through the Lord's Prayer, line by line, because we believe that although it's really simple for a child to recite, it's rich enough to enlarge from its outline glorious doctrines and helpful applications for, for daily life. Now, this evening, we're looking at the line that Jesus asked us to pray for in Matthew 6, verses, verse 12, which is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the topic of forgiveness is an important issue in human living. And what I've learned in my life so far is that forgiveness is always easy when you're asking someone to forgive you, but it's always harder when someone is asking you to forgive them. And this is partly down uh, to the fact that we often assume the best in ourselves and the worst in others. And to a degree, this has always been the case, but it does seem to be a particular challenge in our present culture where there doesn't seem to be a way back from past failures. The only option seems to be is to call a failure out and ensure that the perpetrator is cancelled. And so, although in our society everyone wants forgiveness, no one is being forgiven. And no one knows how to negotiate forgiveness at a cultural level. The British author and political journalist Ian Dunt said this, The social media frenzy around stories of public shaming claims to be based on compassion. But it is, in fact, an extremely unforgiving culture. 
It defines people solely by the very worst thing they have ever said, and it does not allow them to move on from it, ever. It doesn't matter how much you apologize. It doesn't matter how genuine your sorrow is. It doesn't matter how much you have listened or learned to improve yourself. Any evidence of impurity, no matter how dated, means you are cast out forever. And Douglas Murray, another British author and political commentator in his book, The Madness of Crowds, agrees with Dunn and says this, We have created a world in which forgiveness has become almost impossible. The Christian tradition stressed the desirability of forgiveness, even to the point of infinite forgiveness. As one of the consequences of the death of God, Friedrich Nietzsche foresaw that people would find themselves stuck in cycles of Christian theology and no way out. Specifically, the people would inherit the concepts of guilt, sin, and shame, but would be without the means of redemption which the Christian religion also offered. Today we seem to live in a world where actions can have consequences that we could have never imagined, where guilt and shame are more at hand than ever, and where we have no means whatsoever of redemption. And we do not know who could offer it. Murray, an atheist himself, points out that Christianity gives us the only concepts of of guilt and shame, but also the liberating offer of forgiveness. And for us to be able to face up to our failures, we we need to know that there's a possibility of forgiveness. Otherwise, the best option is is simply just to hide our failings of fear rejection and hope that by pointing out other people's failures, that people will be distracted from seeing our own. And so forgiveness is an important and relevant topic to be looking at together for us all this evening, whether we are a Christian or we're not. There's a lot of books uh, that have been written by the, on the subject of forgiveness. But I think this is the best one. I would really recommend it. Um, it's a new one by Tim Keller, Timothy Keller, and, and it's on Forgiven. And I, I think I'm going to put that as my monthly, new monthly book. And so hopefully we'll have some copies of that uh, down in uh, the stall afterwards. But it's a fantastic book and excellent and well worth a read. But this evening, my hope is that although forgiveness is difficult, isn't it? It's difficult in our lives. We will see what it could look like as we receive it, but also what it could look like as we grant it to those around us. We'll see that forgiveness is not the opposite of seeking true justice, but it's the precondition of it. That although forgiveness comes at a cost, we'll see the huge resources that we have at our disposals from Jesus Christ to not only face up to our own failings, but to deal with the failings of those around us as we move towards them in forgiveness. And so the subject of forgiveness, I would like to look at it under three headings. The problem, the proposal, and the resources of forgiveness. First of all, then, we've got the problem. Forgiveness is really hard. It's really difficult. And when it comes to forgiveness, I'd like to suggest that there are three problems that people have with forgiveness that make it difficult. Firstly, forgiveness seems to make light of the wrong done. So many survivors of abuse warn that requirements of forgiveness have been used against victims, imploring them to move on and get over it. That it's been used as a strategy for institutions and abusers to avoid accountability. In fact, many ask questions, doesn't forgiving perpetrators only encourage abuse? Isn't it true that if a continually oppressed group of people forgive their oppressors, it merely keeps the abusive system in place? But you see, what lies behind this conflict over forgiveness is that it assumes definitions and models 
that are problematic. Rachel Den Hollander, the former US gymnast who was sexually assaulted by the gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser, was the first woman who publicly accused him, which led to eventually hundreds of other women coming forward uh, of their own stories of abuse and assault. Now, Rachel is a Christian and an advocate. She was going around churches, and she would see that churches routinely mishandled sexual assault allegations by counseling victims to forgive and forget. She learned of women being told to forgive and not report husbands abusing their daughters, teaching concepts of of forgiveness and grace that result in abusers being forgiven while victims are silenced. And this kind of unconditional forgiveness, which is extremely problematic and unbiblical, has sadly led many victims and advocates to reject forgiveness as it makes light of the wrong done to individuals. The second problem people have with forgiveness is that it often has to be linked with the person saying sorry. We say things like, I can't forgive that person until they ask for forgiveness. Until they repent, I'm not going to forgive. And often this causes a problem because the people who cause us hurt often don't want to repent. Or the person who has hurt us is unknown or may have even died. And so what then? The third problem people have with forgiveness is that forgiveness needs to be earned. This is sometimes called transactional forgiveness. In uh, an American monthly uh, fashion magazine called Harper's Bazaar, the writer Jennifer Wright asked the question, should we forgive men accused of sexual assault? Her her conclusion was, women have rarely been in a position to be angry before, but we've rarely been in a position where our forgiveness has not automatically been assumed before. Giving it out judiciously to those who earn it, that too is a kind of power that we deserve. This is what people call transactional merited forgiveness. And the idea behind it is that you, you make the perpetrator earn forgiveness. As long as there's been enough weeping, uh, apologizing and self-abatement, then the victim will consider forgiveness. But is this really forgiveness? Isn't this just a sort of gauntlet through which the perpetrator is forced to run until he or she is sufficiently wounded? Isn't it a sort of a skillful, skillfully hidden way to, to pay, pay back people and, and to control, have some control over them? And sadly, over my time as a pastor, um, I've, I counseled one, one marriage uh, through this, and the wife had had an affair, and, and although she was absolutely distraught and apologetic about the affair, her husband gave her forgiveness, but it was transactional forgiveness which meant that there were going to be ways in which she would have to pay back the debt that she's caused. Now, as we scan over the three problems we have in front of us, we'll see that there's actually three models of grace over them. We have cheap grace, where we find the perpetrator being let off the hook. We have little grace, and we have no grace with both basically seeking revenge, leading to endless cycles of, of retaliation and vengeance back and forth between the victim and the wrongdoer. And as a Christian, I would say that the, these three problems with forgiveness and these three models of grace lack the transformational and motivational forgiveness in the vertical. We've left God out of the picture. Now, you may want to stop me at, at this point and say, hang on, John. 
You've just mentioned that the church has been one of the institutions that has pushed cheap grace and unconditional forgiveness that has caused abuse victims and advocates to turn away from traditional religion and Christianity. And that's right. And sadly, the church needs to repent and we need to hold people to account for such careless guidance or intentional deception. But this isn't the message of forgiveness from Christianity. This isn't the message. And we'll get to that um, later on. But let, let me just use Rachel Den Hollander, the gymnast that I mentioned earlier, to tell you why she is a Christian. In her memoir, What is a Girl Worth?, she recounts her extensive inner wrestle with wanting to forgive her abuser, Dr. Nasser, but not wanting her forgiveness to be used as an excuse to act if something terrible wasn't that bad. She admits that. She had considered removing God from the picture, like so many others had done, and follow the secular path. Asking questions like, wouldn't this remove the guilt over my struggle to forgive? Wouldn't it make the pursuit of justice uh, uninhibited by all sorts of religious hang-ups? Wouldn't it be a kind of liberation to be to herself and follow her own understanding of right and wrong and justice? She writes, I went down that path many times, but it didn't fix the problem. Because I had no way of defining what evil or justice was. It actually made the problem worse. And as she looked to Jesus with the right understanding of the cross, she found three helpful principles. Firstly, a victim's sense of injustice and desire of vindication is upheld at the cross. Secondly, the cross shows her that God is committed to both justice and forgiveness. And thirdly, the example of the Son of God at the cross, inverts the power dynamic at play in oppression and abuse. For her, the cross of Jesus makes it possible for us to forgive the perpetrator and seek justice. Not just for her sake, but for justice sake, for God's sake, for the perpetrator's sake, for the future victim's sake. Our motivation then to do this is radically changed when we look at the cross. Forgiveness is really difficult for us, isn't it? And yet it's really important because our society can't live without it. And when it's absent, the results are horrifying. And so what's the answer? Well, that brings us to our second point. The proposal. What does forgiveness look like? And it's true to say that pretty much all the world religions talk about forgiving your enemies. But whilst others say that you should only forgive your enemy after he or she has asked for forgiveness, Christianity raises the bar and says that we should always forgive. We should always forgive. In Mark chapter 11, 25, Jesus says, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. Or Matthew 5, 43 to 45, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that, you may, that they, you may be children of your Father in heaven. Christianity is unique. And what I love for, for us to do now is to, to, maybe if you've put your Bibles down, reopen those Bibles, and we're going to be looking at the parable of the unmerciful servant that Evelyn kindly read out in Matthew chapter 18. If you haven't got a Bible, pick one of the church Bibles up for us. And what I'd like us to do is, I'd like us to, Now move us from the conceptual to the personal. 
as we consider what forgiveness looks like in our own situation, in our own life. Because what we find in this parable is that we are provided with four stages of what it looks like to forgive someone. And so the first stage is that we need to name the debt, verse 24. Verse 23 to 24 say this, follow with me if you can, if you will. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And what we see in this parable is that in the person of the king, God, is, and the person is brought before him in verse 24, where the actual debt is named. He doesn't cover it up. He doesn't try to excuse it away like cheap grace. He doesn't make light of the wrongdoing. This is because forgiveness starts with telling the truth. By naming the debt. In fact, if you don't admit the debt and condemn the wrong, then you can't actually forgive. You say, oh, hey, I guess it's okay. Uh, you didn't really mean it. They were sort of extenuating circumstances. You'll find as time goes by that you haven't really forgiven them. Forgiveness starts by admitting the wrong, condemning the act and naming the hurt. But then in verse 27, have a look. We find the three more stages of forgiveness, which we'll go through now one at a time. Verse 27 says, The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. So the second stage of forgiveness by the king was to pity the perpetrator. Now this doesn't mean that he just felt sorry for them. Pity is translated sometimes as compassion, which literally means to have your heart go out to someone. And so what does it mean to have your heart go out to someone? Well, it means that we identify with a person. To deliberately do the internal work of reminding ourselves of how much we have in common as you put yourself in their place. And this is the thing that your heart will not want you to do. It just will not want us to do because your heart will want to accentuate the differences between you both. You want to sort of caricature them, creating a one-dimensional distorted view of them. And if you've ever had a cartoon drawing of yourself, uh, it can be a painful experience, can it? Because the cartoonist is, even if he's good-willed or she's good-willed towards you, they're going to exaggerate certain features. You may have a big nose, and then it becomes a massive nose, or big ears, and they can massive ears. They take one or two, or maybe for me, <laughs> three or four, and blow them out of proportion. And that's exactly what we do with our anger with someone. And so someone has lied to us and hurt us. When someone asks us why they lied to you, we probably respond, respond it's because they were a big fat liar. She's always lying. And what we've done is completely reduce that person to the lie. She's, she's just a liar. But when someone turns the tables on us and asks, do you ever lie? Oh, well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Did you do that last time? Well, yes, I did. Why did you lie? Oh. You know, it's complicated. I know I should have done it, but uh, there was this thing going on and, uh, on and that, ch- that happened. And so when it's us, we want to be treated like a three-dimensional human being with context and reason and backstory. But when we're mad at someone else for lying, we just see them as that one-dimensional vin- villain. She's just a liar. And so what does it mean then to let your heart go out to someone? Well, it means that instead of, of looking how different you are, thinking, I'd never have done that. I would never have done it. We're to realize that we're not that different. 
And one theologian put it this way. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Let me read that again. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So we may stay mad at someone when we think of ourselves as being superior to them. That's what happens. We exclude them from the community of human beings and we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. But we need to stop caricaturing them and let our heart go out towards them and identify with them. And like the king representing God in this parable, think of the perpetrator not just as a villain, but as a human being with their own fears and griefs. So, you name the wrong, you identify with the perpetrator. Thirdly, you cancel a debt. Now, this is the heart of what it means to forgive. And and to understand it, we need to understand the gargantuan size of the servant's debt. In verse 24, it says the man owed the king 10,000 bags of gold. In the ESV, it says 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was worth 20 years' wages. 20 years' wages, one talent, and he owed 10,000. He must have owed billions of pounds. And we're, uh, we're supposed to stop and be amazed at the squandering debt. And understand that there is absolutely no way this man is going to be able to pay this debt back. Even though in verse 26, we see him on his knees and he says, be patient with me. I'll pay back everything. There's no way. There's no way he's going to be able to do that. His only hope to avoid slavery was the king's mercy. And we read in verse 27 that the king's heart went out to him and he cancelled the debt. And you see, when he did that, it meant that he would absorb the loss for himself. And this is what forgiveness is. And that's why it's so difficult. Because someone has to pay the debt. Someone has to absorb the debt. It's either you or the perpetrator. The ways that we can pay back a perpetrator may be by trying to hurt them. Uh, We can gossip about them. We can even slander them, always under the guise of, let me just warn you about this person. And when we see them, we can just be cold towards them. And even maybe just withdraw our friendship. And maybe just maybe in our hearts of hearts, if we're really true, we can find ourselves rooted in for their downfall. Rejoicing and savoring anything that goes bad for them. Until that is when we think that they've suffered enough. Some people think by remaining angry with a person that they're giving the perpetrator what they deserve. But in reality, we're just enabling their actions to continue to hurt us. And it puts us in jail, and it just twists us up inside, doesn't it? Now, forgiveness is determining not to make that person pay, or to hold that person liable, or to be cold to them, or to berate them, or to try and harm them. We're not to cancel them, but we're to cancel their debt. You see, forgiveness is an act of will and not a feeling. It needs to be granted often a good while before it is felt. And not felt before it is granted. Because if you wait to feel it before you grant it, you will never do it. And this goes so against our culture's, culture's viewpoint of our feelings. 
that tell us to trust our feelings, to follow our feelings, that our feelings are almost a sort of sacred thing. They are, they are what, who we are. When in reality, we know that they can fluctuate widely throughout the day and at times can be contradictory all at the same time. But this act of the will cuts off our self-pity, our self-righteousness, our self-centeredness. And bit by bit, as we grant forgiveness, resentment will eventually recede and we will feel forgiveness towards that person. Fourthly, and finally on this, verse 27, we are to let them go. And it's this part of the story that will raise questions from those concerned about justice. But forgiveness and justice must go hand in hand. In fact, the great irony is that we need to forgive before we pursue justice. Otherwise, we won't be pursuing justice, but we'll be pursuing vengeance. And so forgiveness is a, is a form of love, and loving someone doesn't mean making it easy for them to keep sinning. So, if a husband is hitting his wife, what should she do? Well, she should forgive him and call the police. And you might say, hang on now, isn't that calling the police, paying him back? Well, no, because it's out of forgiveness and love that you're calling the police. It's for their sake, the community's sake, for, for justice's sake. And if you're a Christian, it's for God's sake. You do it before you think of it for your sake. If we don't let go of that need to exact hurt from that person, what we think they owe us, if we don't name it, if we don't condemn it, and forgive it, then we'll hold that person liable and enact vengeance upon them rather than justice. You see, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. You see, praying forgive us our debts is us showing that we are committed ourselves to forgiving the debts of others, no matter what. No matter what. And so, will you? Will I? Can we pray this tonight? Forgiveness is really difficult, isn't it? But this parable shows us what it looks like for us as our hearts move towards them. We cancel their debt and we let them go. And you may think to yourself, how on earth is this possible? I don't have the resources to do that. Well, that brings us to our third and final point. The resources. How is forgiveness possible? When we come to think about the practices of forgiveness, we tend to think of it as a, as a sort of a private, emotional process, don't we? But the parable of the unmerciful servant comes in the chapter, if you have a look down, that focuses on how we deal with sin in the Christian community. And the various events in that chapter leading up to that parable shows us that how we deal in, with sin in the church is with holiness. And the next story is about compassion. The next story is about discipline. And then our one now is forgiveness. And so the first resource we have as Christians to forgive is the community of believers, the church. According to the New Testament, the community of believers are a resource for discipling each other, for supporting one another, for holding one another to account and helping one another to keep our relationships in check. Each week... We meet together like this and we sing and we pray and we reflect and talk about the central act of Christianity, which is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross to forgive sinners like you and me. And as we meditate on that central message each week and base our lives 
each week and our faith on that, then it's bound to have an effect on us, isn't it? And so when we pray, forgive our debts, we're expressing our faith in the work of Christ on that cross to one another. And this is the reason why you and I should really desire and want to come to church each week. To be reminded of the the great depths of forgiveness we've received so that we can have the resources to forgive those around us. And you know when we stop coming to church and we stop listening to the gospel, it shouldn't really be a surprise to us to see us slowly and incrementally assimilate into the culture around us. And subsequently finding it harder and harder and harder to forgive people. But easier to just cancel them. The second resource, the final resource that we have as Christians. Well, there's many more, but here's here's our last one. The costly cross of Christ. When we pray, forgive us our debts, we are admitting to God our failure to reach the standard expected by him. By our words, by our actions, stress our failures to honour him and obey him as he deserves. And so we recognise both our need for and our reception of forgiveness from God. Tim Keller in his his book on forgiveness says this. When I know that I'm the recipient of this kind of costly grace, when I know Christ went to hell's heart for me, that's when what changes me. That's tears, that's amazement, that's exhilaration. It changes me. Because at the same time, on the one hand, it humbles me out of my pride and self-centeredness and affirms me out of my inferiority and self-pity. It makes me hate my sin because it led to his death. But it forbids me to hate myself because he did it for me to make me free. There is nothing that changes you like this. There are no inferiority complexes because I'm so loved. There are no superiority complexes because I'm a sinner saved only by grace. And you see, the outrageous thing about this parable is that although that servant had been forgiven billions and billions of debt, we find him choking a servant, verse 28, demanding the small price and debt that he was owed. And the shocking thing is that's the image of you and me. To be forgiven everything that you've ever done must change your heart. And if it doesn't lead me to at least wanting to forgive other people, then it's a sign that maybe we haven't really understood the gospel. Corrie Ten Boom was a a Dutch Christian who was imprisoned in Ravensbrück concentration camp uh, during the Second World War for, for helping Jews escape the Nazis. Her and her sister Betsy were there, but sadly her sister Betsy died while at the camp. And when Corrie was released, she was, was going around Germany telling people about the gospel. And, and in 1947, she was speaking in a church in Germany. And after she'd uh, finished speaking, while people were leaving, she saw a man walking towards her who she recognized. This man had been the guard at the concentration camp. She says, it came back to me with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overlight Overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I remember his leather crop swinging from his belt. And now he was in front of me with his hand thrust out. That was a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins at the bottom of the sea. 
Though he didn't recognize her, he confessed to her that he was one of the guards at Ravensbrook and sought forgiveness for all the cruel things that he had done. It was the first time that she had met one of her captors and the woman who had just given a speech about God's forgiveness kept her hands in her pocket. She says, I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death by an apology? Well, she knew that forgiveness was an act of will and not an emotion. So she silently prayed, Jesus, please help me. And so woodenly and mechanically, she lifts up her hand and takes his hand. And she says, as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and it raced on my arm, sprinting into the joint hands. And this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole body, bringing tears to my eyes. And I said, I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Now, she would have never been able to do that if that was the first time that she had ever tried to send her heart out to someone, to identify with the perpetrator, to cancel the debt in the knowledge of the king who was servant of all. She would have never done it if she didn't understand the costly cross of Christ. Friends, we need to to look at Jesus on the cross. And we need to see him looking back at us. Seeing all the ways in which we deny him and we betray him. And yet in the greatest act of loving the entire history of the world, Jesus stayed. He saw what we were like and he stayed. Screaming at his executioners, Father, forgive them. Our forgiveness cost Jesus everything. And understanding the Christ of Jesus on the cross is one of the keys to unlocking our heart so that we too can respond in an overwhelming gratitude to him and enable us to move towards those that have hurt us. Offering them this precious forgiveness that we have received. The world, you see, doesn't have the resources that we do. We are just judged on the worst things about us and are just cancelled. But in Christianity, we have all the resources that we need to be powerful agents of forgiveness in this world, fueled by the wonderful cross that sees the very worst in you and me But instead of cancelling us out, accepts us as we are. And helps us not only face up to our own failings, but to be able to deal with the failings of those around us so we can move towards them in forgiveness. And so brothers and sisters, how will we respond to the parable this this evening? How will we respond? Like the unmerciful servant or the merciful servant who died for you and me? Let's pray.
Holy Father, please forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Thank you for the costly cross of Christ that cancels our debt and completely redeems us. Father, you know that many of us have suffered great wrongs and we carry them around with us that twists us up and just makes us ugly. Help us to realise how much we have been forgiven. Help us to be reminded that your heart went out to us and that we are far more forgiven than we must forgive. (laughs) Help us to forgive those who repent of their sins and help us to forgive those who have not yet repented. Help us to love our enemies and leave justice to you. And above all, to genuinely pardon the debts of others. We know that this is only possible by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so please give us strength to forgive that we too may forgive, may be forgiven in Jesus' name, in whom is both the forgiveness of sins and the power to forgive. Amen.